Greetings, everyone. This is Ross Ben with Mystic Mike. Here it is, long awaited, 11.11. We're going to do some more balling in America. And just to, uh, you know, address the elephant in the room, I know it's been about six or seven weeks since uh, our last episode. But uh, the reality is, well, you know, I think uh, what I say, I, 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 I balled myself out, you know, <laughs> I, think, I think Mike did as well, because reality is ball is, is a dark topic, you know, and we didn't even really get into the fullness. We kind of just dealt with ball on a historical level. We made light of it, you know, but uh, balling ain't easy. This ball game ain't easy. And I know it took me a, a, a minute to recharge my batteries and get grounded and fully in the present afterwards. What, you know, what was your thoughts and experiences, Mike? Well, uh, <laughs> well, first off, first off, it's good to see you, my friend. Um, so the, the elephant in the room, and I, I'm going to take responsibility for that because where we left off, you know, it was it was my turn to come back. And and this has happened actually a few times uh, in our interactions. I noticed this uh, the first time which I came out to the Wissahickon and we did the tour. We went to the I Am Temple and then we went to Kelpius Cave. And like at the time, like, you know, it just seems like a normal thing. Like, oh, wow, this is cool. This is interesting connection, all that sort of stuff. And then like a day or two later, like just internally, like how it, how I experienced it internally was, you know, my, my, my energy was lower. My, my motivation to do anything was lower. My, my drive was to go inside, to be still, to contemplate. And so that's not a conscious thing. It's not like, oh, well, you know, my list of things to do today, I'll contemplate and stay inside. It was like, no, it's like, you know, when you are moved from within, you know, you, you do whatever like within takes you to. So that lasted, I remember that. And, and Jesse came and me and Jesse talked about that. And then a series of just like, you know, events in life, like it seemed to kind of be like there was a correcting, if you will. And correction isn't always, you know, the most comfortable thing. So let's fast forward to six or seven weeks ago. So we go, and we have our conversation. And it was it was a deep conversation. I was only there for half of it. Right. Um, and so I listened to the other half in my headphones, like whenever you release that the next day or so. And then the exact same thing, like I was kind of hit with it. I was like, you know, it wasn't so much the specific information as much as it was the act of like we're going deep into like a dark a dark sort of stuff you know a, a, like maybe an uncomfortable blind spot in mm. in like this narrative and so when that happens when you go deep like you know this is the inside stuff so long and short of it like uh, i really needed some space from it from like a lot of work i think shortly after that i stopped um I stopped taking on uh, 
I stopped taking on uh, one-on-one sessions. It wasn't like, you know, a cause and effect, like, oh no, Ross said some stuff and now I'm no longer going to talk to folks. That's just what naturally unfolded. And so my life has gone through like, you know, nothing major, but there've been some changes and adjustments. And I can't help but think that, that the impetus, the impetus of, of just these conversations of this consciousness. And that's a lot about what I'm going to, that's a lot of what I'm going to be talking about today is consciousness and how consciousness uh, literally creates our reality. What's my reality? I didn't feel like doing nothing. Like that's reality, that's experience. And so like now we're, we're coming full circle. Um, you know, I'm really, uh, um, we talked a little bit about this off camera. Like I've got some stuff I want to cover and I'm like, wow, this is going to be new for me because I'm, I'm rushing my process a bit, but I'm also kind of feel like by rush by, you know, releasing my normal timeline of creating a presentation, sitting with it and delivering it. Like I'm doing it in a different way today. And so that has me a little anxious, you know, like, wow, am I going to be able to tie all these ideas together? But then I'm also feel a little bit lighter because, you know, this, the, the process, at least my process of creating a, a, a presentation, starting in the, this space, the mind space, and then going into like the actual, like, let me create some visuals. And then how am I going to tell that story? You know, that's work. And I think a lot of what we're talking about, or at least my perspective on ball and balling has to do with work and mm. the normalization of work. Like, you know, mm. I got to work. And so there's a lightness that happens when we don't have to do work. That doesn't mean we don't do nothing. It just means like, you know, it's, it's, it's perspective. And so part of like this whole experience for me in this presentation which will be following is like, you know, a real like, you know, live wire act of someone kind of like consciously stepping in to like, let me release some of these ideas that have been that I've been born into that have become second nature to me, not my first nature, but my second nature, it felt like a second skin that doesn't mean it's my skin. It's just like I thought it was so. So I am, um, I'm excited to be back and have this conversation. Uh, I've moved through that process. Uh, and in fact, the timing is perfect. The last part of this presentation will be about a, a trip I just took last weekend, mm. which also seems to be since that's going to be the um, the final piece of my presentation today, this trip, which I took, it also tells me that the timing of this presentation could have only occurred once. This, right. what, you know, this isn't planning. This isn't like right. this is life unfolding. We so unfolding. You know, that's, thing is unfolding. It's unfolding. It's unfolding. Yeah. So, you know, that was a long answer to your, your, your short question, but you know, that's where I am. Well, give thanks. So I think how we're going to do it right today, the ball is in Mike's hands. It's in Mike's court and I'm going to uh, do what you did. I'm going to, I'm going to turn my camera off, but I'm going to leave my mic on. All right. All right. I appreciate and, that. And if every now and then you say something like that sparks something, I hope I can, you know, jump in real quick and just build with you right in that moment. Please do. Please do. That door is open. This is a this is a two way conversation. Uh, right. Before we get before we get started, I'm going to go in and I, I want to show you something. So please. um 
So uh, Roz and I, we uh, Roz invited me to sit in a booth with him at a festival about two weekends ago or three weekends ago. And it was, you know, you know, on another topic, that thing was that was right. like this great experience. And I'm loving it. Was, it. Uh, it was the Pennsylvania Fall Cannabis Festival in Kutztown, Pennsylvania. In the middle of nowhere, and that place was packed. It was, there was a lot of people. And what, what, what tickled me about the whole thing, what tickled me about the whole thing was like, there were 200 plus vendors there and 99.9% .9 of their goods and their wares was like directly cannabis related, whether that's like glassware, whether that's like, you know, product or whether something within like a genre. But then like in the middle of all of that was our booth and like you've got your crystals and all of that around. And in the middle of that was like these works, these books, which both you and I have, have created and some of the artwork. And, you know, the long, the short of it is like the level of, of approach, which we bring to like history and maybe conspiracy and all this sort of stuff. Like it's, it, it's not entry level. It's not entry level. Like this is deep stuff. Like only us, if you're watching this show, you are in a very, very small percentage of people who are open to ideas and perspectives. Like a lot of people can't handle that. So all that being said, like in this, like in this, this, this event, which which is attracting a certain vibe and a certain attitude like buried in the middle of it was this like deep 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 sort of 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 information and seeing the people who it resonated with because there's only a small percent um that just made me so happy because i'm watching people walk by just kind of zoned out like in whatever world they're in and you could see that spark because i don't think anyone came for me and anyone a couple people did come for you i did know i did talk to some folks who are like is ross here can i speak to ross uh but for the most part when i could see that spark and i could see that something which we're talking about or wrote about like hit someone like they were able to jump through all these hoops to come to kutztown to go through all of this and find it like to me that is so much fun so that was great but that's yeah. not what i'm going to show you so there was a, uh, i walked around i always like to look at like the vendors and see if like there's anything that speaks to me and for the most part like not nah, whatever like i'm a minimalist i want only what i need only something which is going to speak to me deeply and there was a, a guy there and um he was selling a lot of Peruvian goods. So he spends half of his time down in Peru on like a, like a, a camp-like setting, for lack of a better word, with his spiritual family. And then he comes back to the United States afterwards. And uh, I was like, all right, there's, there's, there's something about that story that spoke to me, about the guy who spoke to me and, and, and where in Peru, where, where he was. So anyway, long and short of it, do you remember? I think I showed it to you. The, the little souvenir I got, it was like a handmade round textile. Do you remember that? It's yeah. like a patch. Yeah. So long story short, right? long story long. So I take that patch because I'm a, I'm a crafty guy. I like to work with my hands. I like to create. And I really like this idea of, of working with people anonymously. Like I kind of know who the person is who, who made the, the, the piece, which I had, because I asked the person, I'm like, who made this? Tell me about it and show me a picture. And so there was a connection. She doesn't know me. She doesn't know what happened, you know, with this thing she made. And once it leaves her hands. So I take that and now I start working with it. You know, I start weaving in with this other person's work. And so it, it becomes this connection. And so that's another thing in which uh, to me, 
which not just you and I are doing, but all of the participants, whether it is someone who's just listening or watching or whether someone who also has contact with us, like we're building these connections. And so what I did was a symbolic, but literal like reconnection with some of this other woman's energy. And so I'm kind of proud of it. So I want to show it to you. So this is what I came up with. So if you remember, there was that circle and then I attached it into this, to this uh, fabric here and I did some weaving around it. And in mm. fact, I, I use this to then put my crystals when I spread them out in, in before meditation or something like that. This is what I use this for. Um, and so that's that one last thing. So the materials which I use were all very important materials. I don't know if you know this, but I lived in a church for 60 days last year. And this material here, that green, I, I, I brought that from the church. I was supposed to clean mm. out the church. And so like that energy is in there. And then this like uh, this canvas, you know, that's that's the same canvas I use for making this sign. So all of this sort of stuff. So I love these these connections, you know, any way which we're able to do it to build either direct or indirect symbolic uh, literal connections in a, uh, uh, you know, with I seem to have locked up. Let me say. Did I lock up on you? Yeah, you have. All right, so let me uh, stop the video. Let me start. Am I back? Yeah. All right, so 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 that's a big part of it, and that's a that's a. I want to share that to also set the stage. So real quick, so what'd you think? You like it? Love it. Yeah. Speaking (laughs) of connections, we should uh, thank Sister Tamu of Mend Arts up in. Kutztown, she was a gracious hostess, as well as uh, Ras Naim and Infinite Treasures. These are the uh, ones who, yeah, they opened that portal for us to be up there. You know, they wanted the mystics of the 40th parallel to be present. And Mm. yeah, we thankful. That was a, I think you described it best. You know, you talk about a bazaar. And as far as a marketplace, uh, being a, a place where you can encounter the bazaar, there was a lot of different things out there, man. Uh, yeah, it was a very interesting marketplace. I was thankful to have experienced that. And I would have, like you say, it was in the middle of nowhere. I would have never anticipated the energy and the vibes, <clears throat> the people that were out there. But I also did observe that, right, it's very close to Allentown. That place is kind of triangulating New York and Philly. And I guess Pittsburgh to a degree. Because I but I say that because I did observe a lot of New Yorkers in, in you know, at both the cellars and uh by you know uh just ones walking around so it was an interesting experience you know thank you for bringing that up i i'm all about the the ball mission you know yeah 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 and 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 i gotta express my gratitude also i expressed it to you but then also the originators who opened the portal it was a great time i did not get to meet ross naim is that that's that's his name correct yes 
Yes, like, uh, um, but I look forward to making that connection, particularly if he is watching this. You know, I would. Uh, I'm looking forward to when when we get to meet face to face. So, so I'm very excited for that. And uh, <laughs> one other thing about the location, uh, what what really jumped out that part of Pennsylvania is right by what's called Indian Town Gap. Do you know what that is? You had started telling me about it. It's just a place in the in in like the Appalachian in the ridge of the Appalachian Mountains where it opens up. It was a place where people would be able to like go from from a, f across that line without having to go up and over the mountains. And so it was just naturally it was just naturally like you know a a, a meeting place. And and now it's a I think it's where the Pennsylvania National Guard is headquartered, and that's basically mm. what Indian Town Gap is. But at one point, it was just known as Indian Town, which kind of tells you, like, you know, about its significance. But even more so is like it's a portal in the most literal sense. It's a passageway for the land that is on that side of the ridge, and then the land on the other side. And on the other side is where we start getting in, into. Um, uh, you know, that's where the anthracite is and all this other stuff. So we can look at it geologically to ascertain like the, the energetics of it. Like it was a portal and it's a protected portal. How do you know it's protected? Cause ain't nobody's living there. Right. <laughs> right. All right. All right. All right. Are we ready to go? Ready, bro. All right. So, so let me see. Let me see. All right. Um, screen share, uh, share sound. Um, here we go. All right. So, so this is, this is going to be a three part presentation and, um, the nuts and the bolts of it or the, or, or the real, the real, um, meaning that I'm trying to pass on. There's going to be lots of like data points, but it's mostly about consciousness and reality and how they are so interconnected and how ball consciousness is in the backdrop of all of our, our experiences because of what we've been born into and to become more aware of seeing it, uh, both in terms of our own lives, but then also seeing how false realities can and are created. I made this, I made uh, a little bit of commentary in the very beginning about like work and, 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 ball consciousness and certain attitudes becoming second nature, second nature, meaning something that becomes so close to our experience of understanding reality that we don't realize it's a second nature. The term right. second nature implies there's a first nature and our first right. nature comes before that. And this is just natural of being human beings and which is we become what we are born into. Whatever, whatever is the culture, the household, the language, the viewpoints, you know, whether whether it's a harmonious thing or not harmonious, we become that we mold around it. And so that becomes in many ways our second nature. And so what we're going to see here is uh, I'm going to talk about concepts. First, beginning with just like ideas of reality and consciousness, just so that everyone's on the same page of my use of those words. That's not to say like this is the, the definition. I'm saying this is Mike's definition in terms of how I'm giving this presentation. And then I'm going to go into some uh, specific examples 
of, of ball consciousness in the false reality. I'm going to talk specifically about baseball. I always like to go back to that. And I'm going to look at it, particularly if, if people are familiar with some of my, my takes on baseball. There's going to be some new stuff, which I'm going to cover today. And then lastly, uh, the last part, I'm going to talk about a trip, which I just took down to Williamsburg, Virginia and Jamestown, Virginia. And I'm going to try to tie it all together. So that's the the overview and let's just jump right in we're going to part one is about reality creating false realities and uh and ball consciousness so i'm going to begin with this very simple model of understanding consciousness so there are a couple parts um and and we all have this you know this can this applies to all of us so we have an inner world and then there's an outer world, you know, if it exists within you, if it begins within you, that's part of the inner world. And the outer world is all of like, you know, everything that's not beginning within you, if you will. And then there is a connection, you know, between our inner worlds and the outer worlds. And that creates a feedback loop. Um, and this feedback loop is, you know, and this feedback loop, this is your reality. This is your actual consciousness, your conscious reality of what you experience. And this feedback loop goes both ways. You know, there's, you know, the inner world can affect the outer world. The outer world affects the inner world. It goes back and forth. There, there are many ways in which this happens. It's part of the mystery of the human experience. And so um, the feedback loop is... Um, I'll move on to the next slide. So, so the inner world, we could also define this as consciousness itself. And so this is, um, we're looking at this dynamic between the inner world and the outer world, this feedback loop where they play off one another, where there's almost like, you know, it goes back and forth, who's leading this dance, if you will. But the two main parts, particularly what we have control of is what we pay our attention to in the outer world. And so there are infinite things which we can we we can place our attention to, and then the feedback loop comes back and it goes to our inner world, and then whatever it is we put our awareness to, whatever it is we're we're looking at, whether literally or symbolically, we will then label it or define it from our inner world, and then this creates meaning and this creates like our reality. So let's go um, a little bit deeper with with just like the when I when I say the outer world. So the outer world, and these are just like I'm giving a model. I'm 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 giving definition to something that does not have definition. I'm not saying this is the only way. I'm just saying this is a way of understanding the un understandable. So the outer world, like in the most general sense, to me, I break it up in three ways. We've got like the baseline reality, and that's the natural world. It's nature. It's all of the things that are material and physical, which we experience life with. And then, um, but it's that before it's named. Because as soon as we start naming things, then we create this other thing. And this is, this is part of the human experience. These are false realities. The false reality exists within the baseline reality. 
every human being, a human experience, when you start having stories, when you start having meaning, all this sort of stuff, it's a false reality. I'm going to define that in a moment. Um, but then these two things, they exist in what I call the greater reality. And the greater reality is the mystery, the mystery of life, all of those things which, which are outside of the material world, but are real, which we can kind of understand, like that greater reality term, um, uh, for me, encapsulates it all. Encapsulates it all. So we're always connected. Like each of us is individual, um, and we're always connected to a variety of all of these things. We're always like paying attention to like you know things in false reality, the natural world, greater reality, and that's going to be unique to each person. And then it comes back, and and we define it. We define it both like what we what we've been educated on how we've been indoctrinated how like our general uh preferences our likes and our dislikes our experience like all of the things that make us individuals all of these different sort of lenses um the what we pay attention to in the outer world then comes back and we provide meaning to what it is this is why two people can look at the exact same thing have the exact same experience in the outer world but then they're they're their, their, their feeling world, their, their emotional world, their experiential world to that can be completely different because their inner world is different. It is, it is, it is regulated to a different thing. We're all individuals and that's going to be unique to each of us. So um, before I get deeper into the inner world, I just want to say this about a, when I define a false reality, this is how we know what a false reality is. And false reality doesn't necessarily mean bad. It just means it's a false reality. A false reality is any reality that if it is not being fed, it will die. If you are not feeding it, it will die. Or if someone else is not feeding it. So for example, like the financial system, like if all of a sudden everyone stopped like participating in this financial system, it would die. You know, it's a false reality. Like it's real on a certain level, but it's also false. Like uh, government, if everyone stops, if everyone stops voting, that would go away. Something else would come. Uh, languages, if you stop speaking a language, that language dies. These are false realities. And so some false realities are in greater harmony with na the natural world, with baseline reality, and some are not, but, but nonetheless, they're false realities. And so let me also give this one point which is like, let's go look at the sun rising. Whether you believe in the sun rising or not believing in the sun rising, it's going to rise. The false reality is telling you is what we tell ourselves what the sun is and why it's rising. But what is what is natural, what is not the false reality is, you know, seeing it go up. You know, that is something regardless of belief. So that's just an example of like kind of like this differentiation between false realities. Um, so, so I I'm talking about all of this because I want to go into um, what I call ball consciousness. And so ball consciousness is a way which is within our, our inner world, a lens within our inner world, which we have been born into. We have become that way of perceiving reality. Uh, in the same way, if you're born into a household where they speak English, like you just become it, it becomes second nature. And what you what you did so so beautifully, Ross, in my opinion, on the last in our last episode, was you 
you demonstrated two things, or there are two things that jumped out at me. It was one was this storyline which we find ourselves living within, which exists much, much longer, goes back much, much further than maybe what we what we know. And then also showing how all of these different storylines uh, of history, which at least for myself had seemed to be disconnected, that they were connected in a certain way. And particularly, you know, coming back to, to the establishment of this new world, you know, the establishment of the colonies, which brought us to where we are today within what we call North America. So, so seeing that that was um, was really, really significant to see that. And then also to recognize that we've been told a lot of stories, which may be factual or actual descriptions of describing, you know, certain events within history, but then also realizing, but there's more to it. Like that's just right. a snapshot. It's just right. a snapshot. And so what that does is it breaks things down. So where I'm going to go with this is then is talking about specifically ball, what I'm calling ball consciousness yeah. and ball consciousness being a way in which we as individuals who've been born into it. And this is going to be unique to all of us, but I'm going to say if you if you're alive in this in this this modern culture and you got an internet and you got the you got you got the headphones to listen to things and you're paying bills and you got to worry about all the stuff to just survive, you're part of it. I'm part right. of it. There's not like a shame with that. There's a recognition so, so I want to break this down as this is a lens within all of our inner worlds. And so what we see, what we expect to see is what we do see. This is part of this inner world, outer world feedback loop. Your yeah. inner world, all of our inner worlds are, are, are um, focused in a certain unique way of, of what, what matters to you, what you look for in reality. This is all done unconsciously. And then we go and we see it out of the infinite things to look for. And then we come back with it and we have, uh, we have meaning. And so another way of describing this inner world is it's made of different lenses. And one of the most basic lenses I'm going to say is this ball consciousness, because we have been born into this system of approach for, you know, for a very, very long time. So it seems normal. It seems appropriate because we expect right. to see it. We see it. And this is what 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 creates these feedback loops and perpetrates false realities. There, there are different ways of, of false realities. There are false reality programs which go on indefinitely, you know, just like taking care of itself. You're born into it and the people just go and um, and uh, 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 propagate it by teaching their children what they've learned. But then there are also false reality projects. And these are very, very like short-lived uh, short operations with a beginning point and an end point, which fit within a program. And I'm gonna say right now, we're, we're, we're seeing collectively, this is a project. This is, we're going through something with an end point, which they're trying to continue continue a particular way of being of consciousness. And so now uh, the, 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 same, the same institutions, what, whatever you want to call the, 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 the way which manages the fact that we're always in this ball type of world. And as we saw, ball reaches all different cultures. Um, 
as we become more clear, particularly right now, because we're seeing a shift like right before our eyes, we're seeing we're seeing a, a we're, we're seeing a trick being played. This is how you're creating a part of the false reality. We're seeing that. And by recognizing all of the different parts within ourselves, to know oneself, this is part of what that means to understand what your unique way of seeing the world and then deciding whether or not you continue with this. Uh, you know, that that is what this is about. So ball consciousness, I think the best way to really understand it is to compare it to something else and something which which I learned uh, listening to you. Uh, and particularly as we've been talking about ball is this idea of Edenic, of Eden, of Eden like. So we have ball and these are words. These are words to understand concepts of approach. So we have a ball consciousness and an Edenic consciousness. We have ball cultures and we have Edenic cultures, I suppose, all these different things. So I want to compare the two so we can begin to understand it. So I like to think of, of the, from the, the top line comparison between these two is that of an apex predator of seeing reality and approaching reality in such a way that there is an apex, an apex predator versus, and that would be the ball consciousness versus this apex nurture. That would be the opposite of it. So within a ball consciousness, uh, and we and we see this. So it's it's there. There could be ball worshiping. And that's a very, very like I understand what I'm doing and I'm participating in this with like, you know, the full the my full capabilities and my conscious alignment. And then there's like a consciousness, which is something which you've just learned. So within ball consciousness, there is this just kind of understanding that there is this at the peak of our reality of our world of our culture there's this apex predator and if we don't keep this apex predator happy you know and if we're not working for this apex predator well then we're not going to get our stuff there's going to be a negative payback i am not taking i'm not taken care of and if i am in harmony you know if i bow down and kiss the ring of this apex predator this is a concept right. then i am taken care of because this is their game now, if you start it's, to, think, uh, you know, that's like uh, Darwinism. That's exactly it. You know, and Darwinism like is like what you're saying, like this apex predator ball consciousness manifest culturally, societally here in the West, because that's the basic paradigm that defines human nature and uh you know what's expected yes yes this is your nature you this is, exactly exactly yeah. and so th so think about that as it relates to a project so that would be a project versus a program a program is an ongoing you know for eternity uh uh approach and so at some point in time in the 1800s, Darwin started putting out this idea of by of the, the the biological evolution and survival of the fittest and all of this sort of stuff. Prior to that, that was not like a necessarily a universally accepted idea of how reality works. So there was a project in which this had to be sold into the consciousness of folks.
And there was like when just the same thing with with dinosaurs, there was once a time like no one believed in dinosaurs. Then all of a sudden they're like, oh, no, actually, there were enormous lizards. They were, you know, gigantic and they they lived all over the place. And a lot of folks, whether that's an actual description or not, it's not the conversation I want to have right now. I'm just talking about consciousness. This was reached. This was originally met by some people as like that ain't true. That's not true. That's not what I know. And then the project goes to condition the brain through like, you know, indoctrination and through all of these different techniques. Right. And then at some point that takes foot. And then you got to stop doing that. Then all of that work is done. That project comes to an end and then it becomes self-propagating. Oh, yeah, survival of the fittest, survival of the fittest. And that's where it fits into the program. We're seeing that happening right now with something which we're dealing with, like health issues. We're seeing a project until hope. what they're hoping is it takes root, that people accept that this is the way things are. And then, you know, you don't have to constantly sell it. So, yes, so we've got this apex predator. The opposite of that is this apex nurture at the very top of the pyramid, if you will. And I'm being kind of like air quotes is like, no, there's something that takes care of you. There's something that's going to take care of you. You are part of something which is so great that you do not need to. This is what you said so much so frequently in your presentation was enterprise. It's all about work. How are you going to do your work? And think about this. That is such an American value. And, 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 I, and that word is so, so it's tricky because I talked about making this, this craft and I said, I get to work and I use work to describe something which I don't consider that work at all. Uh, okay. Or it has a different connotation of like, I got to go to my nine to five. It ain't that. So like there's subtleties, there's something which we are to do, I suppose, but it's, there's a difference. One is for survival and one is because this is my natural expression as who I am, because whether I get paid or not get paid, this is what I do. And so again, this is part of like understanding who one is, is because they recognize that. So we begin with this idea of what we're calling ball consciousness of this survival of the fittest of this, like you got to work, you got to pay your tribute to your boss, to your captain, you're still paying. Like it's this, it's mob mentality. It is, it is all of these hierarchies, you know, it's, 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 it's very much like the, the churches, any of these hierarchical churches, we see that. So I want to go down a couple different ways of, of, of looking at the difference between these Edenic consciousness and ball consciousness. And this is what I think we're born into it. And some of us embrace like they really, really, really align with this idea of ball consciousness. Like it makes sense to them. And then there's some people like it's harder for them to like, okay, this is, this is, this is something which they reject the program or or exactly. It requires more, more, more effort. And so this, what I'm going to go and share, like what, what I'm going to encourage a person if they're listening to this is kind of check how they respond to it. You know, not as like, you know, this is right or wrong, but recognizing we're on a continuum because some of the stuff of ball consciousness, like Mike, as a person likes, I'm like, I kind of dig that, but then also beginning to recognize like the subtlety. So this is just all bringing awareness. So Um, Ball consciousness is very much about this idea of scarcity and limitation. There are limited resources. There are limited, there's limitations to your life. There's limitations to all of this sort of stuff, um, which is very opposite 
to abundance. You know, as you were writing or as you were reading the words that were written about what the new world, you know, the quote unquote new world smelled like by right. the by these people are seeing it. And they're like, there is just so much of everything. You know, that's that like the, it permeates everything we need to do. You know, scarcity is like, oh, you know, there's like it is biological within the male that he knows that he needs to 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 fight and find a woman in order to ensure his procreation and his lineage and his seed is passed on. That's a friggin' idea. Right. That's an idea. But that's like saying there's a limitation of of like, you know, women resources or like, you know, I want to get the championship. There's only one champion. That's a limited resource. Oh, I'm living in a city. I want to go and get a parking spot. But there's so many people parked on my block. Am I going to get a spot like these are all like limitations and there. And we can see from how our system, which we're born into, which we kind of like and we've been encouraged and valued and, and rewarded for participating in, like it becomes our second nature so so when we think of ball consciousness all things with scarcity you know we is 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 fits into it um enterprise and work you know we got to go and get to work there's something we got to accomplish like it's not good enough as it is i've got to go and improve upon it you know that's part of it i got to get to work how many people would do their work if they weren't being bribed with a paycheck you know, that's a real question. What right. would I do if they weren't bribing me? And then ask yourself, well, what would I still be doing if I wasn't being bribed? You know, those sort of questions, like not necessarily in terms of 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 figuring out the right answer as much as it is to figuring out where your boundaries internally lie. Like, OK, this matters. This doesn't matter to me. Um, and you understand purpose. I would say that comes out. I would say yeah. that that definitely comes out. Um, but the comparison, which I did to enterprise and work, is is the significance of rest and reception. We are so anti-rest in our culture, right? Like, I mean, you know, think about uh, think about like this idea. We we know it is a baseline reality truth that the material world fixes itself when it rests. You know, rest is so significant, like that's when the magic work happens, you know, the stuff in the greater reality that you can't really explain, like, I don't know why, like, you know, I'm not consciously digesting my food, I'm not consciously regulating my, my, my temperature, but that's happening, particularly when I'm slow. So like, you know, this idea of, of work and always have to, having to be hustling, you know, that's part of a mentality. Now, there's something fun about hustling. There's something fun about work, too. There's something very satisfying. So this is where it gets confusing and we begin to recognize <clears throat> what we've been born into and what, what's been normalized. This one's a real tricky one for me. This idea of competition versus cooperation and harmony. Like competition in the most basic level is the fight for scarcity. Whatever it is, is you're scarce, what you're fighting for, the competition is to get it. You know, those were the examples. Like, you know, I am competing. And there's, you know, I th there is a truth to the fact that that competition does sharpen one's sword. 
You know, uh, if if I'm I'm going to run faster, like if you were to go and say, how fast can you run, Mike, in this in this 40 yard dash? And you got like a stopwatch and I run as fast as I can, like three times you get my time. Uh, chances are it once I rest and recuperate, if I was racing against someone who might be like a step faster than me, like not like much, much faster, but just a little bit faster, I'd run faster. That's what competition does. It can push right. you to places you haven't been. Like there's that and competition can be kind of fun. Like, you know, I, I'm notorious for, for board games. I love to play board games. I get real serious on them. Like, you know, I recognize that I don't have to win, but I love the experience. And so that is in their, their competition is this where it gets tricky. So we see that, but then let's go back to sports for a while. Uh, I'm going to make this argument right now. Uh, if you look at the, we are in a, uh, we place our prized athletes on a pedestal in our culture, yeah. in our culture. It doesn't matter what the sport is, what country it is, like whatever the top one is, like they are put up on, they are put up on a pedestal for pure athletic prowess. And there's something beautiful and fun and all that sort of stuff. Like I like to watch, I, I do like to watch really, really like, you know, people who are beautiful in their body, who can move and do all this, like, I get that. Um, but if you go to the realm of professional sports, you know, the elite, the elitist level of, of professional athleticism, and usually within any sport, there tends to be someone maybe once in a generation who is head and shoulders against above everyone else. Like all of his other competition, like this guy is just like, whoa, for the most part, there are exceptions to this rule for the most part. If you go and you look at that person, because that person is typically like they, they, they get a lot of good, a lot of good publicity and they are sold to us as wonderful human beings. They tend to be really shitty people. Hmm. You know, if you go and you like and I, you know, I'm not going to go and name any names, but if you go and you read some of these, 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 these biographies or like these anecdotal stories of what some of these like amazing, amazing competitors are like outside of their life, this need to win. Because that's part of being an amazing competitor in our in our professional sports world. This need to win and to win is so is, you know, it's so valued. But you carry that often that is carried throughout the rest of their lives. And they're just horrible. They're like not good people to be around, you know, they're, and they've been rewarded for that. Like that is kind of like the, the, to an extreme, like the, 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 the human aspect where competition is immensely destructive. Like, you know, where the, the, the irony of these very, very selfish human, I'm competing with everything attitude and applying that to all of their relations, you know, with other human beings, with the environment in general, like just like that is a, a, a viewpoint point. Um, and then I want to compare that to this idea of cooperation, of like working together, of being in harmony, whether that's being in harmony with your environment. Um, and that's when you got to question your environment. But nonetheless, like, you know, if, <laughs> you know, you could be in harmony with our ball environment, that is true, you'll be rewarded by it. But then maybe being in harmony with with the baseline reality. And that comes and and the word cooperation goes a lot with with humans, like how we right. can work together. Totally. We we live in a strange sort of place where our culture is immense, immensely competitive. We're competitive with all of with everyone else, you know, for whatever it is we're competing for, you know, the most amount of likes or the, you know, the, the championship, whatever we're right. competing, but we also got to work together. 
And so I, I look at it that we got a 80, 20, 80% competitive outlook within our civilization, 20% cooperative. What's that 20%? The fact that we're not rioting and killing each other like, you know, immediately. Right. Uh, and I would say may, at least if we're living within, within groups of people, like it should be flipped the other way, 80% uh, cooperation. But that cooperative attitude, that is this Edenic, you know, this all things are provided for you. It is both, let's say, experiential, but I say it begins, particularly now, with an attitude, with an inner lens, with a with a with an inner world of seeing the reality, because what you uh, you see what you expect to see. And when all we see is competition, when all we see is 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 that. Well, then we're going to go and experience that. And so this is beginning to recognize and how this ball consciousness is, which we're born into, creates this filter in which we see reality. And then we go out and we see the outer world and then it becomes real. You know, a, right. a year ago, there was a new a new uh, 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 therapy, a new medication that was introduced and they introduced it with the scarcity model saying like, hey, hey, there's only limited ones of this special sauce. And people were like, oh, I got to get it. I got to get it like that's the that's the the meeting that's a false reality there was plenty there was plenty there was a false reality of a with this happens all the time of a purposeful withholding of of a of of supply and then it meets the inner world of like a competitive viewpoint and then when they meet like it it's a very predictable reality that's how these false realities and ball consciousness in the most mundane everyday level becomes actual reality so um the last point i want to say is you know another way which we can look at it like the very idea of cities or hierarchical uh hierarchical living like very very strict and, and well-defined caste systems you know that is part of this like scarcity model there are only so many people at the top and there's like too many people living in too small of a space so all resources are artificially though it is true are fought for like you know that is ball consciousness and the edenic would be and I, I say this maybe with quotation marks, like nomadic, like we have stories in our mind of what nomadic people look like. And uh, like when I say not look like, like what that experience looks like, you know, Stone Age maybe or hunter gatherer or prehistory. So we've been painted that picture. But 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 that's not I'm not limiting nomadic to that nomadic means that you are in flow with life and less about grounded or rooted within a system. So that was that was like the the last um, that's the last point I want to go into this 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 uh, viewpoint or this understanding of of ball consciousness or or more so a, a consciousness which I'm calling ball like we could call it a lot of other words which fit it but but in light of your presentation and what we're talking about here like it makes the most amount of sense to me right now to title it ball consciousness so before I get into the next step I want to pause and see if you have any like questions or comments or anything which you want to add to that or need any more clarification If you're speaking, you're mute. It's possible you've stepped away. So I'm going to assume, Roz, you stepped away for a moment. And now we're going to go and uh, I'm going to go back into um, 
the presentation. So, okay. So where are we? So the next, the next part is baseball. And what I want to do right now is, 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 is I, I talked about sports and, 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 and we live in a sports culture. And if you look at most civilizations, uh, sports are very, very significant. You know, whether you want to go and look at like the, the Iron Curtain or the communist regime and you look at what the Soviets were, like, you know, how important uh, the Olympics uh, uh, the Olympics were to the Soviet empire and like the whole cold war sort of thing, or you want to go and look at the ball games in Mesoamerica, or you want to go and look at the original Olympics back in ancient Greece, like sporting has always been very important. And I'm going to focus on baseball and baseball is particularly of significance within our culture of, of the United States, because baseball is our national past time. So when something is past time, it is not limited by time, which makes it eternal. So there's some kind of like code words within baseball. Um, and this has been well, well um, covered by a lot of folks about like the, the depths of baseball and, and, and the, the meaning of baseball. I'm not going to really go down that line, but, but I want to indicate that, that I'm aware, and I think that there's a lot, a lot to be said if you're interested in baseball to begin looking at it as a, a something much, much deeper than just simply um, a ball game. And the reason why I also like to talk about baseball is because I talk about the Susquehanna River a lot. That's a very significant uh, part of my experience and my reality. And the Baseball Hall of Fame is located at a very important location. Uh, in the Susquehanna, right where it begins. And so because of that, if you're familiar with like some of my other baseball work, like I go really deep in a lot of different ways and talk about baseball. But I wanna talk, uh, I wanna begin by talking about Abner Doubleday. So, um, and the Doubleday myth. And so the Doubleday myth refers to the belief that the sport of baseball was invented in, in 1839 by future American Civil War general Abner Doubleday in Cooperstown, New York. Cooperstown is at the headwaters of the Susquehanna. The claim initially received a favorable reception from Americans, but eventually garnered criticism from various writers. So this is a false reality. Um, it's pretty much understood like th that th in baseball, for baseball uh, historians, that, that Abner Doubleday did not invent baseball, but and he did not invent baseball at Cooperstown, but that story took root and then it's become a life of its own. This false reality, uh, this, 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 this made up story has become an actual, an actual reality, though it's built upon you know, a, a total myth. So the question is, so who was Doubleday? Who was Doubleday? So Doubleday, who he was, was a career United States Army officer and Union Major General in the American Civil War. He fired the first shot of defense at Fort Sumner, the opening battle of the, of the war. So, so Wikipedia is telling you right now that this guy fired the first shot of the Civil War. <laughs> right? You know, think about that symbolically. Think about George Washington throwing his uh, silver dollar across the Potomac. Think about the mythologies, which are told to us about certain characters. Um, and we know about the, you know, how important the Civil War is, like in terms of framing up our understanding of American history. 
And Abner Doubleday played a pivotal role in the early fighting of the Battle of Gettysburg. So this, this statement's a little bit of, of an understatement of how the story works. Uh, Abner Doubleday is thought of to be the hero of the of of Gettysburg. Um, he was a Union general, or I don't think he was a general at the time, but but he was put in charge. His commander was killed like on the first day and they were like the, the Union was outmanned and he was able to hold off the Confederate forces until until the the Union backup came and then the Union won and the, the tide of the Civil War changed. Abner Doubleday said to be that guy. He's the guy who made this happen. So this is this is part of the Abner Doubleday story. So we're going to go and, and look. So the question is, who was, who was Doubleday? So I'm calling Doubleday. He was a literal conductor of death. So we're going to look at the Battle of Gettysburg. So the Battle of Gettysburg took place over July 1st through 3rd. It was a three-day event. It took place in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. If you look right here at the location at 39.81 degrees, that is uh, very, very close to being spot on the 39th parallel. That's probably, I don't know, less than a mile from it. But anyway, so the Get Battle of Gettysburg is a big deal in American history, within American lore, within American, you know, you know, within the stories which we tell ourselves and we're told. And in this three-day battle, the two armies suffered between 46,000 and 51,000 casualties. So let's say 50,000 people died there. So we have Abner Doubleday was a general at this this three day uh, this three day occurrence. You know, I'm not saying he wasn't part of other uh, battles, but this is a really really significant one. And if you stop and you think about this. And you think about like human experience and just, you know, maybe even using your own as a point of reference, like how many people have you seen die? Like with your own eyes, die in front of you, you know, may most people probably have not seen that or it's going to be a small percentage or a percentage of people. And then of those who've actually seen people die, you know, how many have seen like a violent traumatic death? You know, there are different types of death. You could be around, you know, surrounding like a loved one as they as they transition over. Like that's a very different sort of experience. But a traumatic death, and that's an even smaller population. There are people who've seen that. But 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 imagine now seeing in a three-day period, being in the center, the conductor of 50,000 deaths. Like that doesn't mean you see it all, but you are surrounded in that energy. Like obviously everyone who was involved with that or any major battle has been in that. If you've been in any sort of battle, like, you know, that puts you in a small group of people, like a smaller group of the total human family. Not everyone has that experience. And this right here is very, this is like the elite and elite of that, of this this 50,000 deaths, and to give you a point of reference, like, you know, D-Day, the storming of Normandy of the beginning of like, you know, the, the arrival of, of British and American forces on, on, uh, on uh, the, the continental Europe in World War II, where we see all of the, the footage of, of, of the bodies just being mowed down. They open up like the, the back of the boats and they're just getting mowed down. Like there were 10,000 casualties that day. 
That was a one-day occurrence. And so compare that to the 50,000. Like, this is a big number. This isn't a competition to say, like, well, this was more, this is less. This is me pointing out a very specific, like, literal fact. Abner Doubleday is a conductor of death. He was the general there. He's had these experiences. That is part of what and whom he is. So we have to take that in reference into understanding who this mythological inventor of baseball is. So now we're going to go a little bit deeper with Doubleday. So Doubleday was also a leading occultist named by another occultist as the inventor of baseball. So when I'm saying occultist right now, I'm saying someone who is consciously working within the invisible realm and within the within the the time period, within the time period um, in which Abner Doubleday lived, a spiritualism and very conscious uh, interaction with with the dead, whether that being fictitious, like, you know, scam artists or, or actually being able to to connect with the dead, irregardless, like these were experiences which were commonplace in the occultic circles uh, back then and double day was part of it so now we we see that this guy is very much like you know a necromancer no matter how you want to go and describe it but i want to go and walk through this line i want to give the receipts so um we see here we're like all right well where does this double day myth begin so in 1908 15 years after his death double day was declared by the mills commission to have invented the game of baseball the claim has been thoroughly debunked by historians but I'm going to tell you right now, it's because of that myth, Cooperstown, uh, that myth saying that that Doubleday invented it at Cooperstown, fall false realities. Then the Baseball Hall of Fame was built there. And then now everyone knows that's not true, but it doesn't matter. Baseball is now linked to the river, even if it was done on a farce. This is part of false realities, you know. So, OK, so we see that. So we're going to go a little bit deeper with that in 1888 good year. A lot of things happen in these years that have three numbers. And if you look at it, the history they tell us, but in 1888, Spalding. And so Spalding, this is the same Spalding of Spalding Sporting Goods. He was an owner of the Chicago Cubs. Spalding accompanied a group of star players on a world tour to promote baseball, playing an exhibition game in the shadow of the Great Pyramids of Egypt. He actually went all over the world, but they're pulling out the Great Pyramids of Egypt. So that's, you know, I would think about that. Um, and then afterwards, upon their return the following year, a dinner was held to honor the players and Mills. So Mills was another owner of the uh, of another um, baseball team, professional baseball team, was asked to serve of the master of ceremonies. The dinner was held at Delmonico's restaurant in New York, and it was attended by an eclectic and prestigious crowd of 300 guests, including Mark Twain and Theodore Roosevelt. And so during this event, there was some talk as like where baseball was invented and and Spalding and someone, this guy Chadwick was saying it was based upon a uh, um, a uh, a game called Rounders, which is similar to baseball in England. And and Spalding is like, no, this is an American game. Interesting side note, rounders is a term as it relates to like a professional poker player and usually like a, not necessarily a scam artist, but someone who like grinds out a living, taking money, uh, taking money from, from like regular card players. So there's like an element of a, a little bit of like a distrustness with it. So I'm just saying like that is built into the language here, but nonetheless, um, because of that, that argument that happened after this, this, this dinner at Delmonico's, um, 
where uh, Spalding, in response, Spalding, who believed baseball was fundamentally American invention, published an article disputing Chadwick's claim. Chadwick was the guy who said it was rounders and challenged him by suggesting that that they appoint a commission to settle the matter. And Chadwick agreed. And in 1905, a commission headed by Mills was formed. So this is the backstory. This is the false reality. There was this argument. Where's baseball coming from? Oh, we're going to solve it. We're going to create this Mills Commission. And then the Mills Commission goes and they say like Abner Doubleday was the inventor of baseball. And this was all a Spalding. This was all about Albert Spalding. It's just given the name of Mills. This happens all the time in creating these false realities is you give the, the, the credit because it's not about them for the credit. It's about like pushing forward a certain narrative. So this is really a Spalding, a Spalding enterprise. So then the question is, who is Spalding? Spalding had been a prominent member of the Theosophical Society. In 1900, Spalding moved to San Diego with with his newly acquired second wife, Elizabeth, and he was a prominent member and supporter of the Theosophical Society or community Loma Land, which was there. Okay, it is a well-known fact. This is just like one sentence from, from Wikipedia. If you dig, dig deeper, you see that, you know, this guy spotting like theosophy was a big part of his life. So now we go and we look back at, at uh, Doubleday. In the summer of seven, 1878, Doubleday lived in Mendham Township, New Jersey, and became a prominent member of the Theosophical Society. When the two founders of the society, H.P. Plavatsky and Henry Steele Alcott, when they moved to India, he was constituted as the president of the American body. Like they're saying that he was the president of the Theosophical Society. And I'm making an assumption that everyone, you know, knows what the Theosophical Society is, but at the very least, the entire Western New Age understanding uh, was introduced into the minds through the Theosophical Society. And Abner Doubleday was their president. Uh, Spalding was a, was a prominent member who 20 years later, after him becoming president, named this, this prominent theosophist, named a former theosophical president as the inventor of baseball in this false reality. You know, that's, that's what we have. So this, was, this, is, this is how you create false realities. You go and you put it out there, it takes root, and then it becomes, and then it becomes something. It becomes something. So if you, if, Probably if you if you listen to my work, you may have heard these stories before. So now we're going to start going a little bit deeper. So what we want to do is we want to look at um, Double Day Field. So Double Day Field is in the town of Cooperstown. OK, this is a baseball field which is named after Abner Doubleday. Uh, a block away from the from the uh, baseball Hall of Fame's physical location, and it is significant because, according to the Doubleday myth, so realize this: it is understood, it is understood in the minds of baseball historians that that Abner Doubleday, and I, I don't even want to get into the details, but that he didn't invent the game. It doesn't make sense. The logic which was used to credit Doubleday for inventing the game, like 
it po you poke holes through those stories very quickly. That's why it says by now it's been disputed. No one believes it. But nonetheless, there is then this paralleled mythology that Abner Doubleday invented this game of baseball in Cooperstown in 1930 in 1839. And he invented it at I don't know how to pronounce this Elihu Finney's farm. So this is the Elihu Finney's farm is where it was said that he invented baseball and then they built this this stadium, which is called the Double Day Stadium. And as you can see right here, it was baseball was invented. They're putting it quotation marks uh, in the year 1839. This baseball park. So they're talking about the modern day Double Day Field was erected on the same site. So at one point they're saying like, oh, we know he didn't invent baseball here, but this is where he invented baseball. He invented on this field in this farm from a hundred years ago, this is where he came up with the rules and now we have double day field. And so this is not a real thing, but it is real. These are false realities that are being built into the consciousness. Now, this is only on this, this baseball level, but this is how reality is created. It starts in these very mundane levels. So where I'm going with all of this about baseball field, um, so here we go, um, is the fact that this, this double day field, which is said to be the home of baseball, where in this literal ground, this, this hollow ground, if you will, just like, like Gettysburg is said to be hollow ground, this hollow ground from a baseball perspective is where the game which you love was invented on this farm. And so this is where it began, which puts every baseball diamond, every baseball field mm. in a harmony, in a resonance with this origin, mm. absolutely independent of the fact of if it did, if it happened or did not happen, it doesn't matter. You've got thousands and thousands of people not even thinking like walking around and putting masks on their face because it's the reality, regardless of how it got there. It has become a reality. And on a certain way, this is this has become true. It's become manifest. So we've got from this false reality, from this from this this ball consciousness, this is this is not only is this baseball diamond, you know, uh, worked uh, worked into the collective consciousness of all Americans. It is also 1600 feet from the headwaters of the Susquehanna River. Now, I've talked about the significance of this uh, a whole bunch. So I'm not going to go into it, but this is all the same land. This is less than a mile away. This is where the so I'll read a little bit of this double day field is renowned is renowned the world over a recognizable name to baseball fans, despite the fact that it's nestled in the center of a village of only 2000 inhabitants. Hmm. So um, we see here the grounds have been used for baseball since 1920. They're talking about when the field was built on what was originally this guy Finney's farm. So let's look a little bit about Finney. Finney was invited to Cooperstown by Judge William Cooper, who Cooperstown is named after. If you're familiar with um, uh, the author Cooper, like this is his father, the guy who wrote, I can't, um, what did he write? Uh, was it Last of the Mohicans? I think it was Last of the Mohicans. That's why mm. it takes place in Cooperstown. Like this is the guy where it comes from. He invites Finney. Finney then goes and starts a, um, publishing and printing house there. And then uh, he was really well known for printing Bibles. And in fact, 
Joseph Smith used one of Finney's Bibles in order to for his translation to create the 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 the, the Mormon well, Bible. The Mormon. Uh, so like we can go and see there are so many metaphysical, spiritual, uh, energetic links that are all going to this farm, which is right on the whether it's the Mormon, the baseball, all baseball diamonds are in harmony, are in connected on a certain level of reality to this spot, to this spot. All right. This is how we create false realities. You know, we see this picture right here. We've got this picture of it. Look at this. Like, I mean, this is literally a Norman Rockwell painting. Like you've right. got this picturesque town. This is known as Glimmerglass Lake. This is where right here, where my cursor is, where, where the headwaters are, then begins the 444 mile journey to the Chesapeake Bay. Like, I mean, look at this. We've got this map right here. So now where I want to go is what is a baseball diamond? So we could look at this model. We can see that a baseball diamond, like the idea of a baseball diamond is grounded in reality at this place. Um, and it is in harmony through like, you know, you could look at it like sacred geometry, like whenever, like all of these different, different sacred geometry or geometric shapes are in a certain degree of harmony with one another. And so we're going to look at the diamond and be like, well, what is this instrument which is being used to, to create these connections all throughout wherever you find a baseball diamond, this is what we got going on. So if you're familiar with this type of thought, like I'm not the first person who's thought this way. I think I might be the first person who suggested like, you know, that this is a web using baseball to then connect, you know, all baseball diamonds across, you know, earth to this one location. But, but within this school of thought, what's often brought, brought up is the similarity between the baseball diamond and the Masonic compass and square. And there, there's definitely a truth to that. And where I'm gonna go is a little bit different, but if, if, you, are, if you know your history, if you know your, your, your Masonic lore, well, you know, you're gonna see that this overlaps. But I'm gonna look at the baseball diamond from a different lens. I'm gonna look at it from the lens of a yantra. And so if you're not familiar with the yantra, this is just like, you know, some pictures of yantras. Um, it goes back, uh, you know, at least I think of it as being tied into um, uh, the Vedic culture, the ancient culture of India. And what a yantra is, is you have this geometric diagram in a circle and it's sur surrounded by a square. So now we've got some, some Freemasonic sort of symbology with the circle and the square. Um, and then these, these uh, uh, flaps on the end of the square, these are called gates, okay? And the reason why Yantra makes sense as a way to look at the baseball diamond is because theosophy, the theosophical perspective, uh, the theosophical society is grounded or a big part of their foundational outlook also goes back to the Vedics and to ancient India. And this is where we see, like, as I said before, like a lot of like the new age understanding um, of reality. You know, it's, it's, it's the old age, you know, this part of the old age. So in theosophy, yantras are very, very uh, important. And, and, you know, they come from a Hindu and a Buddhist, um, from Buddhist and Hindu sacred rites. Um, 
But when encountered in theosophical writing or in Hindu philosophy, this yantra, this shapes, it refers to a mystic diagram. And the diagrams are intended to channel psychic forces. All right. I've got these all over the world, you know. A yantra can be drawn or engaged on metal, stone, skin, paper, or the ground. This might be said that the yantra symbolizes cosmic manifestation out of primordial unity. So remember, this is this is the the theosophical kind of perspective. I mean, whether what what a yantra is inside each one of these squares is the circle, and then the different uh, um, the different geometric patterns are going to correspond with maybe a different deity or a different quality or of something of a spiritual nature. And by meditating and focused upon it, the person is in alignment with this with this with this. Uh, energy being whatever you want to call it and they're called in through these gates okay and so we see this as part of a theosophical a theosophical perspective and we know that the theosoph the theosophical perspective is playing a very very big part within baseball within baseball diamonds and then also linking it to the susquehanna river which to me is how these ideas are then linked deeper onto baseline reality but we're going to begin to look at the baseball diamond as a yantra and what do you use a yantra for? As a concentration and a manifestation of cosmic forces. So this is what a baseball diamond typically looks like. And what, what we're going to see is we're going to see two different yantras. We're going to see two different circles, which are overlapped. They're not, they're not concentric. They're not like on the same center. Um, but, but we'll see where two exist. So the first one is centered on this. I mean, there's quite literally, there's quite literally a pitcher's mound. There is a mound in the center of these yantras. And what we have here is the square. And we have, uh, we've got the circle as the mound right here. It's surrounded by a square. It's implying so to uh, this level of geometry at every corner is another circle. We've got another circle. We've got another circle. We've got another circle. Then we've got a square there. We've got a square there. We've got a square there. What we have here is actually a pentagram. And all of this is, if you could imagine, you put a compass point on the center of this mound. So you put the compass point right here. This is where the, uh, and you brought it to this line, or, you know, at the end of the infield and you did a circle around it, it makes a perfect circle. And you could see this square is encapsulated within this, within, um, excuse me, this circle encapsulates this square, which then encapsulates this, this circle inside. So let's go look at, at the um, the infield with a little bit of a different perspective. And so I'm taking this literal, but we're, we're thinking about this in terms of a, a very, very deep level of, of understanding energy and patterns and stuff like that. So here's our baseball diamond right here. And, you know, so, so I go and I start looking at different yantras and most yantras, they look like this, you know, and this is, yeah, you know, I, I'm looking to see if I can find anything that kind of fits or is similar to, to this basic shape. And, you know, pretty quickly, I find this right here, this, this yantra, and it's, uh, it's for Kal Sarp. And so by no means am I a, am I a Vedic expert, um, 
so I'm kind of cherry picking here. So I'm going to do my best to walk through it. I'm going to, I'm going to walk this through the best way I understand it. But first, I want to look at the shape. Look right here. We've got this baseball diamond right here. And we've got these circles at each of the corners right, right here. And it's very similar that we've got this right here. And we've got the circles. And we've got the circles. It's not exactly the same, but I can see a similarity. Yeah. But what's so, what's so interesting to me is that there are these four cubes right here, three by three cubes. And you don't see that, that, that again, I'm not an expert, but from my, from the knowledge, which I have, you don't see these cubes in the yantras very often. So now when we begin thinking about baseball, like baseball is known as this three by three, uh, at least the score is kept three by three, three strikes you're out, three, three outs per inning. So we're beginning to see numbers come into play. And so the name of this yantra is the Kal Sarp. And this is seemingly, from the way I understand it, I'm not an expert of Vedic astrology. This is actually used as a, um, a, protective, uh, a protective talisman, if you will, from something which is called Kal Sarp, which I believe is either a, a planetary configuration or it is a specific place in the Vedic zodiac. And Kalsarp means death snake, you know, sure. translates loosely into death snake. And so this is like a protection from the death snake. Um, so this here is, is kind of like the, the yantra to that. Um, Quick uh, go, yes. Do you think those squares are like those magic numbers? I'm certainly open to that. You, you know what I'm talking about? Where like, yeah. uh, no matter if you look horizontal, vertical, or diagonal, all the numbers will, the way they're- Like made. a magic square, like a, a Franklin square. square. Yes. Uh, I, that, Time that's- for me to see the detail on it. They're not number, they look like, I can't, I can't read Sanskrit. I. Actually, I'm looking at this. I, they're, they're planetary. So let me go and expand this. So I, I to be quite honest, I haven't looked that close, but, but I can see that's Taurus, right? Oh, it looks like yeah. Taurus. And I know that this has an astrological, an astrological uh, correspondence. I mean, this right here looks a little bit like Scorpio on end. Uh, Vedic astrology is different than, than Western astrology, though it's, it's, it does have a lot of similarities. So maybe this corresponds with those glyphs. I don't know. But the idea of what a magic square represents, like where no matter which way you look at that square, the numbers add up. Um, that I think is, there's a truth to that, you know, in, in workings with the uh, the the. If you're working with magic squares, you're trying to hack at a certain level of reality. Um, and this is seemingly that type of mindset. That's how I see it, at least. Right. Um, and if these are actual numbers, and they could be, I don't know, um, I would be very curious to, to look at them and see if they do add up to a magic square sort of way. But nonetheless, like if you look at like baseball is all about numbers, every position, 
every position has like a numerical equivalent. Like if in the old times, like when people would watch baseball, like think about the mentality. Uh, if, if you were a baseball fan and you went to a baseball game, um, the amount of concentration it required, like you've ever sat with a real baseball fan who understands the details of it. Like I'm not that guy, but I like to, if I'm going to watch baseball, I'm going to want to sit next to that guy. Cause that guy's going to explain to me. He's like, look how they're doing this and look how they're doing that. And like explaining these subtleties, baseball is a subtle game, but these folks would sit and watch these two, three hour games and they would keep score. And they would like, you know, if you've ever seen someone fill out like the, the score boxes there as they're, um, participating in it with their energies and their numbers, like everything's a number and everything's right. concentration on this, like, like it on a certain level, there's a magic, there's a magic square with numbers going on this, like how literal or how, how sharply does it, does this parallel to like an actual magic square? I don't know, but in a very general sort of way of creating reality, this is pulling people in all over the world, the same geometric patterns, uh, working with numbers, concentrating, getting like emotion, like cheering and disappointment. Like this is happening. It's definitely happening. Uh, I, 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 I was this one, this came from us working this idea out through Jesse. So, you know, our friend Jesse, Jesse is much, much more knowledgeable about baseball than I am. So a lot of my baseball questions, particularly playing baseball. So I'd go to Jesse. So I'm talking to Jesse about this and Jesse brought up something which is interesting because I was kind of like I was I was talking about the three strikes and 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 three outs and and this sort of stuff and he's like there's a there's another number there's another number and it's only used once within baseball do you know what that is and um and I'm like no I don't and he's like uh when you get walked and he's like what happens when you get walked the umpire yells ball four huh. right so now we're going to go and we're going to start looking at ball four, right? Yes. So I'm not going to go down that line, but if you go and you, you look a little bit at, at Gerald, I'm not saying this was done consciously, but I am saying this is in harmony. If you go and you look at Alfred Balfour, the guy behind the Balfour Declaration, the guy like completely changed the trajectory, at least on a geopolitical level of a certain part of the world. Like, you know, this, this ties in. World. I'm sorry. The whole world. Fair point. The entire world. Well, go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt. No, not at all. Not, I didn't want to go. I, I just wanted to pull that out. And like, that was Jesse's perspective. But I want to move back to then the second yantra. The first yantra is found right here. <clears throat> and the second one is a little bit less spectacular, if you will. But it's also, but it's, it's, it's the primary one. So this center is based upon the point of home plate. So you got a square, you got a square, you got a square, and then you have a non-perfect pentagram. Like this isn't a perfect pentagram, but it is a five-sided object. Right. And from this point right here, if you put your compass point, you would go and you would trace a circle and you would get a complete circle that would, um, that would, uh, um, that's implied, that's being implied. So what I've shown right here, this is done completely in um, proportion with an actual baseball diamond. I use like a, um, 
I used uh, a standard or, or, or one professional, I forget which, which stadium I used, but I used their specific dimensions and I kept the same proportions. So this green circle is centered around this white dot in the center of this red circle. And we could see here's the other yantra, which sits on top of it. They're not exactly lined up. So let's go look at this right here. We see that this green is encapsulated on what I'm showing as a, as a perfect five-pointed star, but in reality, it's gonna look like this. And so I went and I was looking. You, this, it's, it's less common to find a five-pointed star yantra, but I did find one. And this, this one, this five-pointed star yantra is a yantra to Kali. Hmm. So we we'll go back to here. This is this is the Kal Sarp, which means death's uh, uh, death snake. Where Kal is a um, you know it's seemingly from the same root as Kali, and Kali is like kind of the goddess of destruction and like the death part of the cycle. And so now we've got this this mantra. You know all the folks coming in through the gates. You know these are gates right here. Uh, and they go into the stadium and they've got this double yantra where there's both like, you know, a calling into Kali, but then even more in the center, there's like a protective talisman too. <laughs> you know, that's seemingly what's being indicated. And again, this is, this is me looking at just the way things are and just like, like telling, like, these are the details of the story, which is around us exactly how, how this, what came to be, was this, is this done uh, consciously as I'm suggesting? I can't say that that's outside of my pay grade. I'm just saying, this is what I see. And this is why I'm reaching this conclusion. And it's a very, very logical conclusion. If, if, um, uh, if you look at all of the information, which is available, I got two more slides of baseball and then I want to open up to any more questions. So another thing, which is part of this Cooperstown, and, and I'm just giving a small, small piece of Cooperstown. Like I've talked a lot about Cooperstown, talked a lot about baseball. I've talked a lot about the people who are behind baseball. So I don't really want to go into that too much because that's three hours on itself. Um, but I did want to bring up this last point. So Cooper's, the Baseball Hall of Fame is there because of um, the Singer family. And the Singer family was a uh, uh, an upper crust, a financially upper crust family, um, uh, particularly during the Gilded Age. And they made their money through the Singer sewing machine, um, uh, the Singer sewing machine manufacturing company. Like, you know, they, that, that's how they became rich. And the, the grandson of one of the co-founders, he's the guy, Stephen Clark, he's the guy who, who funded and established the Baseball Hall of Fame. And I believe it's his daughter who still is like the head of the nonprofit organization that's behind the Baseball Hall of Fame. It's a Clark. So that being said, these are two towers. These are two towers which are built upon the... Um, uh, Cooperstown, uh, one on the lake and one like off of the water, uh, both part of the Clark family. And I'm going to come to towers in a moment, but I'm going to point them out. This one right here, and it's known as the, uh, um, the Kingfisher Tower. And it was built by Edward Clark in 1876. It's the same guy who's behind, who built the Dakota apartment building in New York City, where 
Rosemary's Baby, the film depicting wow. the birth of the Antichrist and um, and uh, John Lennon's assassination. Like the same guy who built that, like he built this tower right here. And then I believe it was his son or maybe it was his grandson. This is a this is about a mile inland. He built this 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 uh, druidic tower right here. Um, which is in public land, but it's 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 there's a, um, a a wrought iron fence that surrounds it. But this is another Clark Tower. These are different expressions of this tower idea. But I I, I want to point that out that this is significant. These towers are significant to the family, you know, the lineage, the people who are responsible for really anchoring baseball to the Susquehanna and to Cooperstown, because if they did not build the Baseball Hall of Fame here, then the Doubleday myth would have just evaporated. Hmm. It would have evaporated. That false reality would have like, you know what? People would have seen through it and they're like, oh, the Doubleday didn't invent it. They built, they invented it in New Jersey at Alasian Fields. That's what like the real historians say. That in Hoboken, New Jersey is where they say it was invented, but it doesn't matter. Cooperstown got it. So we want to look at like, you know, this is what I'm talking about consciousness. This is all in the background. This is like, you know, this is how we see reality. And then you, how this is how you create false realities into true or like factual realities. We're, we're witnessing this right now. So before I get into the third part, I want to pause and hear any questions, comments, anything along those lines as it relates to this, this baseball connection to the Susquehanna River and, and connected to all the other baseball fields across Earth. So if I'm hearing you correctly, Doubleday is kind of using the game. Well, he created the game of baseball using like Sanskrit mandala principle to create a grid work of occupying the mounds that what overlays this false reality? So uh, uh, excellent, excellent question or, or place for, for clarification. So I would say it's slightly different. I would say it's slightly different. I would say this that the baseball fields are a grid work that, you know, everywhere, everywhere, you, every hometown, every school, every right. place people get together. This is a grid work, which hmm. all comes back to this point. And this is built upon sans or, or, or an understanding of geometries and, 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 and divine mathematics, it, divine mathematics. Perfect. So I will say, I'll begin with that being the factual truth. Now, what I'm going to say is, um, I don't think Doubleday had anything to do with it. Uh. I think Doubleday is just like, he was chosen. This is like, this was, I don't know how the baseball field came to be. No one is telling you this, but what we know is Albert Spaulding, the theosophist, is linking all of this. He's kind of like, baseball would be whatever baseball is going to be, was going to be. Um, it's they're they're linking it to the river and they're linking it. Um, what I think is like uh, with a great deal of knowledge of 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 the true significance of baseball. And I think we talked a little bit about this before. Um, you know, baseball is 
it is definitely not like, you know, an invented game in 1839. It right. may have been a tweaked, it may have right. been updated. Um, right. It certainly seems to have connections to this game rounders. But if you start digging a little bit deeper, you're like, no, this goes back like thousands and thousands of years. They played it in the Southwest uh, United States or the Southwest North America. Like there's lots of indications that this is an ancient, ancient, ancient pre uh, diluvian sort of thing. Right. Absolutely. So so what I what the way which I see it is there's nothing more apple pie than baseball. Mm. There's nothing more like this is how this is how the fault, like going back to the ball real or ball consciousness. We're born into ball consciousness. We don't think it's a thing. We just think it's this is how life is. And there are all of these ways in which it's propagated. And this is one of those ways in which it's propagated. And you think about what a baseball, where you're finding baseball fields, like, you know, schools and like community centers. And like, it's like uh, it, what it represents. It is past time. It is eternal. Right. Like, it, it, you, I don't think anyone's doing this consciously. It's maybe a small, 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 small percent. I think this is a wheel in motion which just propagates itself. It propagates itself because folks are not paying attention. Uh, it's very possible baseball will be gone in 20 years, you mm. know, as like, you know, this other reality is being created. Like, you know, maybe it's just digital baseball. You know, people don't even know the difference. Um, what I'm most interested in is showing how there are these what I'm most interested in being able to to introduce ideas to introduce are these webs, these webs of energy of consciousness, which are more or less convoluted. They're created. They're false realities. That doesn't mean they don't exist, but they're not like universally true. And these are all of these background sort of things which keep us connected. You know, we talk about like the uh, like ball worship in this very, very like, um, you know, grandiose way, but it's the small connections which keep us, and this just being one of them, which keep right. us connected to it. You know, this right. is just this is just one example. This is a way of thinking Our as a social like, fabric. Bingo is, is ball worship, and we don't even know it. Well, I mean, we don't know it. We exact we 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 are seeing life through that. So I mean, that's. If I, I was thinking a lot about this, like the the Singer sewing machine, it changed the way people wore clothes. It changed fabric. You were talking about like you know the fabric of reality, like Singer sewing machine. Like all of a sudden, it changed like uh, <clears throat> the way people which they would sew, and and what and like hand weaving. And and like that sort of like, you know, that kind of went away because the Singer sewing machine put a, an electronic sewing machine in everybody's home. Right. You know, this was this was a transitional step. We look about at it now in this kind of like post world, uh, 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 post industrial age sort of like lens like, oh, that's kind of quaint or it's grandma like, no, this was cutting edge stuff. This changed the way which people lived in a very, very basic way. And so. You're saying also that baseball was actually invented in Jersey, with the importance of Cooperstown being the headwaters of the Susquehanna and the Susquehanna being like the mother of rivers and the, the mother of waters is being one of these oldest rivers. They 
put the baseball grid at the headwaters of the Susquehanna to keep the story flowing. All right. You see right here. So this was created by someone else. They did these green stitches right there. But do you see those red stitches? Yes. Those red stitches were done by me. And what I did was then I became a participant in this sort of thing. Um, and I did that weaving. And weaving is such a powerful symbol and literal like ritual, like weaving together things. You know, what I did physically also happened on another level. Um, the double day Cooperstown took baseball, like whatever baseball mm. is like, I'm not saying like maybe like modern baseball was created Hoboken. I don't really think it matters. I know baseball is much, much older and it's part of a ball program. You know, right. whether we like the, like to me, to me, like saying, well, actually, it was, it was done in Hoboken rather than 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 Cooperstown is like, well, actually, no, like, you know, the Republicans are better than the Democrats, the Democrats are better than Republicans. Like it's it's it, like on a certain level, that's true. But, but to really argue it, it doesn't. But but there is a connection. And I think there's something interesting about the language of the the which is used in Hoboken. But what is at, like what I can say in material reality is this is where they wove this particular story connecting all of this theosophical perspective and whatever baseball could be like uh, into the river. You know, in that period of time, for whatever reason, like this has happened. This is this is how we 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 can see that false realities are woven. And it's not just like propaganda. It's not just like oh, you know, the the modern propaganda being like algorithms and and echo chambers within social media. And like prior to that was like the power of slogans. And like you know, we're seeing there are all of these different techniques and ways which we're born into, which are have created these these false realities. Remember, I said in the beginning, a false reality only exists as long as it's being fed, right? Because a true reality exists regardless if, if you're feeding it. It's a false reality. And I'm not saying don't have false realities. I got tons of false realities. As soon as you tell yourself a story, it's just you understand what your false reality is. Like, you know, when I say this is me weaving something in, like, you know, that's a story. That's a false reality, but it's based upon a truth. I'm really weaving with someone who I have a connection. They were in the same part of Peru I was, and I'm making an intention. You know, there, there's a lot that becomes my story you're talking about purpose is where we begin to have more impact on an understanding of our own realities um what i'm hoping to do with with all of this is not so much about the details of like the the cooperstown as much as like one this is how false realities one of the ways which which this, this false reality was created false realities that we're living within and just accept and, and be able to see it what it is. Yeah. To see what it is. What is the real reality? We've got this river. What is the most real thing you could do? You could put your feet in it. You could walk around about it. You can have your own story with it. You right. don't need a middleman. And here's the thing, you know, I talked about feeding with energy. Every year they do the Baseball Hall of Fame induction ceremony. You've got tens of thousands of people, fans loving, like seeing like their heroes get inducted. You know what I call the Hall of Ascended Masters. That's what the Baseball Hall of Fame is to me. They are them. And, and there are lots of ways to even tweak that story. But nonetheless, 
that happens on the midpoint between the summer solstice and the and the spring or the fall equinox. It's always the first weekend of August, you know, right around August 1st or 2nd. You know, it falls there. It's a secular energy being flowed into it. We've got the same thing with on Imbolc on, on, on February 2nd at Puxitawney, uh, Pennsylvania with the right. Groundhog's Day. Like, right. like this is this is it. And so it's Puxitawney like Puxitawney is on the Susquehanna as well. It's probably so it gets a little bit uh, complicated. The Western branch is the mystery branch. It's a left handed path. And so what I mean by that is no one knows where the Susquehanna actually begins. Wow. Now on the Western branch, on the right hand, on the right hand or the North branch, it's as obvious as the hand in front of your face. You could see it come out of this river and it goes down. But because of the West branch, how it's situated, there are thousands and thousands of different streams. And like eventually, like they gather together and they become the West branch and where that actually is like is up to debate. That being said, it's basically where Puxitawney is. I got you. So it's like Puxitawney is probably within 10 miles of like the general area of where it's said to be. Yes. So again, the, the, the purpose of this is really understanding consciousness and second natures. Like, you know, how we, we incorporate these different things that are happening behind the scenes into our lens of reality. And as we begin to see it, particularly the false ones, like you, it the 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 observer changes the outcome of the experiment mm. and so yeah. i it is my opinion we are in a time right now where there's a big program which is happening uh, a program is a shift just like we talked about the introduction of this or that they're always happening and it is during these times you have the best opportunity for the greatest number of people to actually see with a greater awareness what is going on All right, so now I'm gonna go to the third section, and um, and I'm gonna see if I could uh, <laughs> bring this to now, like less about um, like uh, uh, me talking about information which I don't really know firsthand, to information which I do know firsthand, and I'm gonna talk about this trip which I just took this past weekend. It was down to Williamsburg, uh, Williamsburg, Virginia, and Jamestown, Virginia, and so if you're familiar with um the susquehanna mystery and the susquehanna uh river work like um jamestown plays a big part of it so this here is the susquehanna river this is right here cooperstown it's where we got our herkimer diamonds right here is where we find um western branch Puxitawney is right here we come here this is where electricity was developed this is where the man who is said to have killed alchemy and birth chemistry this is where he lived joseph Priestley, first computer all the way down here the susquehanna transitions into um into the chesapeake bay same body of water and then right here is where we have jamestown and so this is one end this is the other jamestown's located probably right here and williamsburg is close to um williamsburg is about five miles away from jamestown so when i talk about when i talk about uh, Jamestown, uh, it always begins with this, the John Smith map of Virginia. We've talked about this. We've talked about this Susquehanna, uh, this, uh, many times in like the significance. 
And often uh, what I've done is I've shown, I've used this image in multiple comparisons. I've used this, uh, this there's so much in this pictograph. But one of them has always been like in comparison to George Washington in Freemasonic attire laying the capstone. We could see the similarity between aprons with the fold over and the fringes. We see the 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 jewel in the collar we got the jewel in the collar got a general similarity in in feet like you know weight on one foot foot this foot pointing outward so we've got some stuff going on but now because we're just talking about baseball we're going to change the way we look at this just a little bit that's going to be like the uh, initial link of how we're going to go down into um uh the ball worship and the reason why Jamestown is so significant in this map. So this map is the John Smith map of Virginia. John Smith is the leader of the Jamestown colony. Um, most people probably know John Smith as the male lead in the Disney classic Pocahontas, because that is also part of the mythology and the storyline of the false realities in which, um, in which we're being created. So, okay, so Jamestown, why is Jamestown's important? So I'm down at Jamestown and here are two pictures I saw. So this is inside, this is outside. <coughs> Excuse me. Mm -hmm. on, May, on May 14th, 1607, at a spot a mile from where you are standing now, a group of 104 colonists disembarked from their three small sailing ships to establish the first permanent English settlement in North America. This settlement called Jamestown is where the United States of America really began. The wow. founding of Jamestown sparked a series of cultural encounters that helped shape our nation in the world. When you hear about shaping the world, you're talking about creating false realities. Like they're experientially true, you know, now there Cooperstown is really like the epicenter of baseball, but it was but it was built upon something which which was maybe not not factual or 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 something entirely different. What we're looking at right now, and so much of our experience is the shaping of reality and how we live. And as you indicated in the previous presentation, is like there has been shaping of, of, of the way people live for a very, very long time. And we can and we can begin to identify when there are different shifts. This is a long-term program, but there are lots of projects, and the projects are usually marked with a beginning and an end. And so Jamestown marks a very, very important beginning of another project, which seemingly came to an end in, in 2007, but we're still moving through it right now. So let me go and read this. This is another plaque which they have there. And just think about what this is. At Jamestown began, like just so there's no mistakes on this. And this grammar sounds a little bit like either archaic or even maybe just plain wrong. But if that could have been a mistake, this is written in a certain style. At Jamestown began, the expansion overseas of the English speaking peoples. Hmm. Think about the world we live in. Like, think about. 
like not even all the countries where where English is the primary language, but all countries where English is spoken. English is the de facto language of business. And we live in a world where, where it's ruled by money and it's, and it's managed by business, by busyness. Right. That's enterprise, always working, busyness, business. So, so English is, the, is expanded all over earth. And this is where it began. Prior to 1607, just a small part of the world spoke this language, English. Small number of people, and now it's spoken everywhere. And this is where that first, this where that first weave began. Then the Commonwealth of Virginia. All right, it's beginning the state of Virginia. It is the begin. It's the began of the United States of America. And look at the United States of America's influence on modern culture, maybe even, you know, both in terms of like, you know, a war, a warring kind of like governmental sort of impact, but then also in terms of culturally, you know, all of the things which we have brought to the entire world in every way. Like this isn't judgment. This is just recognizing the influence of the world, like everything from like Hollywood culture to like, you know, sports to like hip hop culture to like, you know, fashions, like all of these things which are inherently, you know, beginning in the United States of America, which have spread and influenced throughout throughout the world. Like this is where that first weave took place. That's where that first stitch was made. And then it says right here, it's the very beginning of the British Commonwealth of Nations, which I think is just like kind of like a nice way of saying um of saying, uh, um, you know, the British Colony. Empire. Yeah, like it, no, no one wants to hear like, you know, empire is no longer a good word. Like they do that all the time. Oh, this was a word we're once allowed to say and now we don't say this word. Like always changing it, like getting people like, that's not reality, that's false reality. Like it's real, but like if you live in that reality, you're living in this other sort of web which was created. But we can see right here the significance of this place, Jamestown, all right? So the reason I'm showing you all this, because I want to talk a little bit about like realities and like false realities. And, and, and I talked about the importance of Cooperstown um, being sewn in right here. But this is where it began. This is where Jamestown began. This was this first thing. They, this has been encapsulated. Whatever a river is, and we're talking baseline rea reality, so we're not defining it. Whatever this is, this is immensely significant. Both we know from its geology and from the history which has taken place upon it. So. <clears throat> This plaque was placed in 1957. It was the 350th anniversary, the 350th anniversary of, um, of Jamestown's, of the establishment of all of this, of all of this. And it is at the base of this tower. Hmm. All right. So I go to Jamestown and it is... Uh, like, it's like legit. It's it's like legit, like the Smithsonian's legit. It's like a lot of money's gone to this. This is, we got a big parking lot. The buildings are really nice. Like it is done. Like if you've got a lot of money to throw at a museum, a lot of money has been thrown at a, at a museum. And this, this is, this was thrown at it. And it was, you know, they were, you could see how important it is to these people. Uh, and they built this tower. 
And I do this a lot. I look at towers and then I go and I do all sorts of research. I'm like, well, who built it? What year did they build it? What architecture firm? What are the dimensions? What is written upon it? Like, who are the people? Like, these are the questions which I have, particularly when I see towers. And I pointed out these towers uh, right here in, in Cooperstown. This, well, the two things which I'm going to say about this tower are one, uh, and this, I guess, is just purely subjective, but it's one of the ugliest things I've ever seen. It's absolutely ugly. Um, there's no kind of like artistry, like I'll, I, particularly like, like looking at this tower, like look how like just the craftsmanship and the beauty, like regardless of whatever it's being used and like, you know, the what, what's been done in this in this tower, this tower is is friggin hideous. Um, it seemingly has like some very uh, purposeful brickwork, but there is no information on it. I spent at least two and a half hours trying to get anything I could on it, and I couldn't find anything other than the fact that it exists. So I just want to say that this that this tower exists. We don't know um, we don't know much about it, but we see this tower is there. Um, now, the other thing which I want to point out, so, so there's information which is, which is being hidden, which is being hidden. Now, the other thing I want to point out is um, I was very excited to go to this museum because I've done so much work on researching Jamestown and I've done it all kind of remotely. I'm like, I want to see what it looks like in real life. I want to see how they present it. I want to see how this is approached, you know, just like no expectation, just kind of like, I want to see how it's done. I want to see behind the curtains. Um, the two things which I find from my lens, from what I pay attention, the two things which I find most interesting about Jamestown is, is, uh, one, this this map, and particularly this reversed forty, this mirrored forty, which is in it, and then also the 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 connection which Jamestown has to Francis Bacon, and both of these things are are pretty well established. Like this, it's well established in the fact that you can see it with your own eyes. If you look at this map, you can see that this forty is written backwards. And then, secondly, like you know, it's just part of history that Francis Bacon had a major part in the colonization scheme in North right. America and was on the executive council of the Jamestown settlement. And he wrote their, he wrote two of their charters. So what I'm, what I found most fascinating that in this huge museum, eh, huge might not be a, a well done museum. There was not one mention of uh, Francis Bacon, uh, and there is not one image of the John Smith map. They talked right. a little bit about John Smith and they showed like, like pieces of the John Smith map, like uh, of the Susquehannock, but they didn't, but it was just completely written off. Like it was just completely ignored in the same way. There's nothing about this tower. This tower is just there. So I'm gonna walk you through this. So I'll give you, this is, this is me walking through entire place you can see that this is a this is a really well done museum with exhibits which you get to walk within immerse yourself in the experience they've got like maps all over the place they've got pictures they've got all this stuff and not one mention of francis 
no mention of Francis Bacon. That's like going. It's about a two-minute video, so we'll, we'll we'll go walk through this, and then I, I I I want you to just see. Like I'm just continuing to walk through this. That's like going to Africa and not seeing any mention of the roads across. Exactly. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. Like I'm go, I keep on going to new places. This is all new. These are artifacts. These are the cannons. These are you can see the maps in the background. This is the only thing with John Smith. There's a picture from the map, but that's all they show. More interesting is what isn't in here. Yeah. <laughs> I saw her. This is legit. This is a deep experiential. So I just walked through the whole length. Not a single mention of the John Smith map, Francis Bacon, all of that is eliminated or not included within this exhibit. So this we're talking about creating false realities, right? You know, there are many ways to do it. You give one story and you hide another story. For whatever reason, this is completely eliminated. Um, like, it's not like done like they're hiding it. They're just not talking about it. Right. And so we, we go and we see, like, this is just like, uh, I just typed in, like, as an example, uh, 10 this is an article called 10 Things About Francis Bacon. He played a... You know, just normal history. He played a key role in the creation of the English colony, especially Virginia. Absolutely no mention in this place. And this place is an experiential museum. You walk around on outside. They have like they've got replicas of the boats you can go on. They've got replicas of 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 the indigenous village. They've got they've got replicas of the of the the Jamestown fort, which you could walk through with like actors dressed in costume who you could talk to. Like this is an immersive false reality experience. Wow. And so, like, you know, it's. There's been so much talk about all of the, the the Francis Bacon stuff is 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 really well do, is well documented. So this is Jamestown, and then this is Williamsburg. Williamsburg is six miles away, six miles away, and so I want to talk just a little bit about Williamsburg and its significance. So Jamestown was the settlement started in the early 1600s. Um, 
And then in the late 1600s, Jamestown, which was also the capital of the Virginia colony, they moved that capital from Jamestown to Williamsburg uh, for a variety of reasons. And the, if you're familiar with the Bacon Rebellion, uh, which supposedly has nothing to do with Francis Bacon, it just has the same name, Bacon. That was the, one of the- family. That is one of the yes, yes. So you see that it was like a like a half, like somehow like there was like a half relation. Um, yeah. The deeper you go and you look at Nathan Bacon, un, uh, undoubtedly, like there's a connection. Um, and the Bacon Rebellion had a lot of like uh, there's a lot to that story, but that was the impetus of moving it to Williamsburg. And Williamsburg was the capital until for maybe a hundred years or so until Thomas Jefferson moved it to to Richmond. But during this short period of time in Williamsburg, a couple of things. William and Mary College was established. It's the second oldest college within um, within North America, Harvard being the oldest, then William and Mary. And William and Mary is also the oldest law school, I believe. Um, and Williamsburg was like it was well to do. It was like for like the the top, top, top 1%, 0.01% of colony living. Like uh, Williamsburg was this real fancy sort of place. And so right now there's this thing called Colonial Williamsburg, which is a living museum where you go and all of these buildings have been um, brought back to life. Uh, but the truth of the matter is the whole thing's a false reality. The whole thing is like made up. Um, some of it like maybe more accurate than others, but it doesn't matter. Like when you go to it and you become immersed into it, it becomes real. It becomes real. Like this is a model of creating deep, deep. And I'm not saying Williamsburg is a bad thing. You don't go to it. I'm saying like Williamsburg is an example of like, just like in the most mundane ways, how consciousness how consciousness is manipulated all the time. And we look at it as awesome. But right. this is like literally how it goes. So you go to Williamsburg and like they, they have over 200 buildings. So actually, I'm going to take a step back. I'm going to take a step back. Um, where to go with this? So Williamsburg... Williamsburg began by John D. Ro Colonial Williamsburg, excuse me. So Williamsburg, like once, once Richmond became the capital, then with the exception of uh, the Williamsburg's got two things going on. It's got the nation's oldest law school and it's got the first state psychiatric war war ward, the first psychiatric hospital. Um, Eastern State Hospital uh, in the colonies. So that's on Williamsburg. Williamsburg kind of like dissipated. And then in the late 20s, uh, John D. Rockefeller Jr. comes in and he's like, hey, I'm going to pump in, a, I'm going to pump in a ton of money. And he creates Colonial Williamsburg and they rebuild all of these buildings. Hmm. Like, the, but it's not what they are. Like half the buildings right. are made up and you walk around like, but the point I'm trying to make, and I'll just leave it at this level of reality. The point I want to make, this is a Rockefeller funded operation. Right. This is a very, very significant location on the material earth for a variety of reasons. Okay. This is, this is the person who is behind, um, uh, who really made this happen. I was looking at the Hall of Philanthropy. There was uh, one section, which was, I think it was, um, 
you know, donations of $25 million or more. And uh, one of the names on there was, was, what was the name? Wallace DeWitt. This is the guy who made his billions from, re from Reader's Digest. He's the Reader's Digest magnate. Um, Reader's Digest is all about taking like big works of literature or of history and can giving you a Cliff Notes version. It's about hiding like, you know, you could look at it from like a, a skeptical perspective or, you know, a practical perspective. But the truth of the matter is it's giving you a watered down version of, of a real thing. That's what this is all about. And some of the things like if you begin to go and you look like this 1957, this 1957 arrival uh, in Jamestown, it was visited by Queen Elizabeth II, Queen Elizabeth II, uh, shortly after her coronation. And so Queen Elizabeth I is when the British Empire began, right? You know, you have, um, it was underneath her reign that John Dee came up with the idea of the British Empire. And then it was under Queen Elizabeth II, where it kind of comes to a comes to a head. So this idea of like John D and John D Rockefeller, I'm finding definitely very interesting, you know, this whole John D thing coming into play, but you continue to look like, you know, as you look closely, this area is constantly being drawn to, or, 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 or a magnet to the shapers of reality, whether this here is a picture of Walt Disney, um, when does it say it was taken? Uh, I don't know if it says in this image where it says it was taken, but it was before the advent of Disneyland, which was the first of the Disney uh, immersion false realities. Like this is where Walt came to Colonial Williamsburg to learn how to do it, to create this, this immersive um, experience. This wow. Queen Elizabeth here in 57, we got Churchill's coming to it. We've got a G7 summit in 83, but this is what, I'm going to leave you, though, with 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 two like kind of like uh, uh, mystical stories. So the first one, the first one is. Uh, <laughs> the first one isn't so personal, but the second one is so within within the um, within the the. Uh, within the. Um, the lore of Williamsburg. In the late 30s, Manly P. Hall's wife and Manly P. Hall became very, very interested in Williamsburg because uh, they found or, or were convinced or, or, or whatever word we want to use to describe, they, they believed that in Williamsburg, they, they found a series of secret glyphs from... Um, uh, dating back to Francis Bacon, which are pointing to a vault, which is buried originally in Jamestown and then moved to Williamsburg under the guise of the, um, of the Bacon Rebellion. And inside this, it's going to have anything, uh, um, you know, anything from, from information about the Emerald Tablet to the conclusion to the, the, the New Atlantis to Rosicrucian secrets. But it was taken seriously enough that they wrote books about it. In 1938, um, uh, Hall's wife was given permission to do an excavation looking for it, which she did not find anything. And then we see again in... Um, we see again in the late 90s that there was renewed interest uh, with this idea that um, there is something hidden 
in the beneath the dirt of Williamsburg, which dates back to um, which dates back to to um, Francis Bacon, dates back to the very beginning of the establishment. We could see here that um, the the in this analysis of it of this story this is like i just cut this from some dude's blog post telling about how in the in the early 90s a bunch of, of folks came new age folks came looking for this vault as well uh and he's tying it into manly p hall and manly p hall's expertise within blavatsky and the theosophical society but we begin we we see that there is also you know whether this is factual or not that there is embedded within the law the lore that there is information literally buried in the this earth in a vault, which, you know, I'm open to that. I don't know if that's factual or not, but I'm like, is this why John D. Rockefeller has found himself there? Is this why we're seeing this money being poured there? John D. Rockefeller is the same guy who started um, the AMA, the American Medical Association. He started World Health Organization through the Rockefeller Foundation. Uh, he's the guy behind the United Nations. He's the guy behind um, the Council on Foreign Relations. This guy was a major, major, major shaper of reality. Jamestown began, as they said, the shape of the world to come. We can see in the early 1900s, John D. Rockefeller is a shape of what's coming you know, at that time and then what's also lying in front of us. So there's something, <laughs> there's something there. There's something definitely, there. Definitely. Um, I'm, I would say one last thing, and then I'm going to stop talking because I've been talking for quite a bit. So this is from my own experience. So I'm down there like on a family trip. It was a family vacation. It was like a reunion, if you will. It just so happened to be in Williamsburg. And so there were like, you know, there's children around. And we're walking around Williamsburg. And we're doing the touristy thing. I've got both hats on, you know, I've got the, the family man hat, but I also got like the, the mystic mystery man hat. And we come across uh, one of the things which makes um, Williamstown um, appealing to so many people is the fact that it has um, living archaeology. There are constant archaeological digs happening and you could walk up and you could talk to the archaeologist and you'd be like, hey, what are you working on, buddy? Uh, and so what they were doing while we were there was at it was at like the the Custis mansion. So apparently the Custis was like the wealthiest man in the wealthiest uh, city in the wealthiest colony. But it was his land and um, and they were looking for uh, fence posts because he had supposedly had a fence around his garden. And one of the things which they said was they found beneath the the one of the fence posts was a severed cow's leg and so they were wondering where that tradition came from but but they they passed that and we were walking around that was the tour the tour guide told us that and then we were brought to the actual archaeologists doing the work and so these just regular folks probably i'd say in their 30s uh you know just did like they've got if you've ever seen what an archaeological dig looks like you know it's a very like precise dig and they've got it like gridded out and they're looking at the they're looking at the um they're looking at the the ground there for 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 parts of this fence and we start a conversation because I think that's part of their job. They have to interact with, with the public. And it turns out uh, of like the four archaeologists who I had conversations with, and of those two people, one went to Millersville University, hmm. which is where I live, 
right on Millersville University. And the other person went to Elizabethtown College. And if you know the diagram of the three colleges that surround uh, High Point, it is Franklin and Marshall, York College, and Elizabethtown College. So of all the archaeologists in all the worlds, and I don't think either one of those schools have particularly like, you know, noteworthy archaeology programs. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. But of that, I'm down there with a very, very, a very, very like uh, focused vision of what's going on. And I find just purely happenstance, you know, the people who I have conversations with, I have an immensely personal connection to because we shared life, like living in the same space. And so the, the, the Manly P. Hall mysticism certainly has me interested, but that as an observer, but when I saw that connection, which I had like just from like human being to human being, like I'm like, there's also something even more, um, uh, there's something else going on, which is personal as well. So this was, I told you, it was all over the place. I covered a lot of things, but what this is all about is realities, false realities, consciousness, and being able to see more clearly as we go and move forward. So it's with that, Ross, I humbly put my hat back in, and I'd like to hear any thoughts or comments or questions. Well, my first, que uh, my first question is from your, like, Right, you're well experienced with the Susquehanna. What was the nature of the Susquehanna like down there in Jamestown? So, so it's it's not called the Susquehanna down it's there. So at that point, right? So, 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 but it's the same bodies of of Jamestown is all is. I'm going to show you this map. It's a great question, but I just want to be very clear with how I um with how I describe it. So let me do screen share and here. So we're looking at, what are we looking at? So this is where I was. This is all the Susquehanna River. All of these rivers, which are tributaries to the Chesapeake Bay are actually, you know, they're tributaries to this main channel, which I call the Susquehanna. Where I was, was right here, right on, I think it's the James River. Um, it's the James River, and it was really wide. I, uh, <clears throat> for a variety of reasons, I love that part of the world. That, like, what, what, what the climate feels like on my skin, what the air smells like to my nose, what the trees look like to my eyes, what the sunlight looks like to my eyes. There's something about that part of the world that speaks to me. I used to live in Richmond. Richmond's maybe, like, 50 miles away from there. Like uh, what we call Virginia, I got a soft spot for like on a personal level. So I like it down there. Um, like just in the most like basic level. And I think that also is part of, um, it's part of what I see as the, the, the story of the Susquehanna, because at the end of the day, the Susquehanna can't be tamed. There aren't any cities on it. There isn't like these high populations. No, they couldn't be tamed because they couldn't put ships on it. You know, that would be the, 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 the reason. But I, I, I like to think about it from a different way. You look at, at, at Cooperstown, whatever you want to say about Cooperstown and, well, and all the things which we're pointing at. And there's some, there's some kind of like dark sort of stuff about that. Cooperstown is charming. It's beautiful. The air smells so good. It's like, you know, the way the leaves turn there, like that part of New York, there's something there. 
and just at the same at the very bottom where where I see where Williamsburg and they are not heavily populated and you do get to get a little bit of a flavor and a taste of what people live like modernly but not so inundated with what has become our norm so I love what the river is like down there I like the fact that like just the highways look nicer down there and all of that I think is part of like this can't really be touched like or there's only so far like there's a purity that still breathes through I don't see that in Lancaster there are parts mm. which I like I don't see that like uh in a lot of parts in 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 the mid-state but I do see it on those endpoints I definitely see it in those endpoints interesting interesting because again i guess uh, like you say this uh false reality in my mind lancaster is like you know amish purity you know like uh this like almost going back in time no or little industry just you know like this pure farmland you know yeah yeah and and like listen i'm not i'm not i, I don't want to I'm, I'm not shitting on people i'm not talking shit but i'm gonna talk some shit uh like they, they they've been romantic the culture that's what i want to say it's not the, i'm not talking about people i'm talking about a culture the culture has been romanticized amish is as ball as can ball can be Huh. It's like uh, we go to the earth and we work the earth. These are beasts of burden put here to work for me. They just don't use electricity, but they do. It is a total workaround. And it is like, you know, there is a, there, like, again, each per like they're individuals. I've had interactions with different individuals, but we, we've been so disconnected, right? That like, even when we see, like we put this thing, which is, definitely closer it's closer to something which is more true i would say and that doesn't mean like the only truth has to be like you know living in a primitive way i'm just saying like living in harmonies like the the amish are the hardest working people i've ever i've ever seen they don't nap what sort of people don't nap <laughs> uh i worked at an amish farm for a little bit which is very rare it's very uncommon that you'll get like what they would call an english to work on an amish farm it was like a cbd farm and i worked there for a couple months and one i learned like i was like wow i'm lazy i never thought of myself as lazy but being around the amish like i'm like i'm lazy but then also like you We're know very industrious and they uh, and enterprise huh they look they and they and and you know i'm going to use a generality i'm not speaking for a group of people but uh they look at the english you know the english is anyone who's not who's not uh amish um they look at us like you know slightly above dogs wow you know we're dumb and we're lazy and we don't work hard and like you know if the, there's a there's a phrase around here which is called the the mennonite mafia and it basically like it has a couple different implications but like they're, they're, they're going to call the shots there's a hierarchy and this hierarchy is there's someone who's going to call a shot and if you're going to get shut out you're going to get shut out and it's 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 there's a lot of parallels right um there's a lot of parallels to to like you know la cosa nostra so it's 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 reaffirming like this is part of this false reality that gets imposed on us and we that's our lens and 
Hmm. Interesting. Well, that's why I began with that like Edenic mindset and that like, you know, that and even it's that's what Lancaster, that's almost how like the false reality, I guess, of Lancaster. It's presented as almost as close to Eden as you're gonna get. Uh, yeah. At least on the east side, east coast, you know. Right. Well, you're absolutely right. You're like, it's like, hey, at least you're not like you're you're not you're you're not in 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 the middle of an urban environment with just asphalt and and like look right here. This is real living. It's like eh. I mean, there, there, there's some truth to that. It's like um, what I what I find most interesting or most most meaningful or purposeful, because I don't think it's helpful to go and say, like, this is where we live and this is wrong. And because that doesn't help anyone. What what I do find helpful is recognizing of a, at least my first approach in looking at the outer world, whatever it is, and looking at it in this like uh uh a, for me an apex nurture perspective like wow look at this i come down to williamsburg and there are people from my own hometown right there this is like you know there's a confirmation with that like you know being able to see being able to 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 recognize how i've been conditioned to see things in another way and and to consciously or purposefully where i am able to see it and control it to not allow that to affect the way i see reality yeah. I love the Amish. I love all my Amish experiences. Uh, I love all my experiences living in a city. I used to, you know, I, uh, I lived in a very, very high dense area, like, um, but being able to see things as they are, that's what's important to me. Yes. Hey, can we go to that John Smith map real quick? Of course we can. I was real curious because Right, one of the themes that seemed to come up when I was looking at ball in America is that there were some indigenous, some groups who seemed to, like they were ballers. And the Susquehanna, I think may have been one. And I, I would agree 100%. I would agree 100%. And right, I think one of the ways that they would indicate the ballers is to give them some, associate some Masonic imagery with them. And, you know, right, the John Smith map being a good example of that. What is that, how does that relate to the, that Mingua's trail? And you're in through Lancaster. So the, the Minkwa Trail is, um, I mean, at the very least, the Minkwa Trail is a historical marker. Uh, but it refers to um, an east-west uh, walking route, which would go from the Susquehanna River, basically on the 40th parallel to, to the Delaware. Um, and it was a well-traveled, uh, and I try to picture in my mind, I love to do this sort of stuff and, um, what it looked like, you know, what does a trail look like? Is it like five feet wide? Is it like, you know, is it, are you walking, is it a road? Um, but that's what the Minkwa trail is. And so the Minkwa trail was really, uh, was the great Minkwa path, I think is what it's labeled on the, on, 
on the historical marker. And it more or less, like I've heard a couple different versions uh, of where it is, but I think maybe there are multiple ones, but where Route 1 is, Route 30, and possibly 76, like those are all like, maybe they have different um, uh, different parallels, who knows? Well, but, Route um, 30 definitely is a straight shot from- Without a doubt. Yeah. Uh, and and the route one goes through something called the Serpentine Barrens. And I was told by someone who would seemingly know that that part of what I think it's probably now like Chester County. Chester County, yes. Yeah, there's a it's called uh, the Serpentine Barren Parks, and like in this immensely dense wooded area of what we now think of Pennsylvania, like it was so dense. Like I was reading about what it what it was like in the colonial times, like when it was first arrived, like the um, all the trees were either pine or sycamore, and they were immensely high. 120, 100, 140 feet would be like average, which, which is really, really high, 10, 14 stories. And they would have a very, very thick canopy, so no light would get down. And there would just be branches at the top. Like this is how, how, what the wooded land would look like. But in the Serpentine Barrens, there was this huge opening where there were no trees, which was naturally right. occurring. The soil, and, the serpentine kind of toxified the soil. Exactly. And like, I just love thinking, but that seemingly like that went through, uh, there were, there, were a lot of, there were a lot of these trails that went through there. There are trails that went all the way to, to the copper mines of, of Michigan. Like they won't call them the copper mines and the historical markers, but they sailed the Great Lakes region. I'm like, where were they going? They were going to the copper mines. Uh, and so uh, I agree with you completely with your point, um, with your point about uh, the, the, that there was balling going on in in the in North America, like there was like all things are different people and different like uh, maybe different cultures, but undoubtedly the Susquehannocks were. We know that because they're the most dominant and more warlike. Uh, we know that because John in the John Smith book he couldn't stop praising and say how amazing they were. They dominated trade. They did. Uh, they, they, there was a lot of there was a lot of stuff written about them. There seems to be two stories. I've read two different stories of the people we call the Susquehannocks. And so, my my guess is that by by looking at 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 history how it's presented, there there's often like an overlapping or an intermingling of like different peoples. And I think maybe that's happening too because there's another version of the Susquehannocks where like these were gentle giants hmm. and these were the peacekeepers and these were, and so I, I don't know. I don't know what the truth is. And it might be like, who's telling the story. Who's telling it the story. It might be speaking of a group over different time periods. Maybe at one time they were gentle giants, you know? And, and I, I, I agree. I, I, I agree. And, and, and there's a, I can, I can say that I've fallen into this. There's, there's a, a tendency to romanticize. Like it, it doesn't matter, like whatever you identify with, you know, you know, within our, within our world, you're going to identify with something. And then there are certain things that are romanticized from each identification group. And so um, to me, what's important is to be able to kind of like see things as it is, 
and not necessarily like say good or bad and pick my sides, but recognize like, okay, this is, let's, let's go through this. Let's, what, what, what is, what is true? What were you born into? What were they born into? And, and where am I? And what do we do right now? Like those are my, that's what I find empowering and important in my personal journey. And this, this, this I want to, I want to research that Minkwa Trail more. I think it has a lot of significance. I, I think that the it's the root of why the Susquehannock and the Lenape fell out during the Beaver Wars. The Susquehannock wanting a direct route, direct access to the Atlantic you know, where they could, because like you say, the Sus Susquehanna is not really navigable compared to the Delaware. And so, yeah. I, I would that, love to, I would love to hear what you come up about that. Yes. Yes. What well, we uncover with it, because that's what I'm saying. We uncover, yes, 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 yes. Yeah, for sure. So, all right. I think that was, uh, that was a whole bunch of, a whole bunch of stuff. You know, my, my head is, uh, spinning. <laughs> yeah. 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 We could pause here for sure. Let let us digest what, what was revealed here. And then we're going to come forward and, and chop it up some more. I don't know if, if ball will be our next episode's topic. Maybe we could shift. I know you said there's, uh, a spot out there you've invited me out to come and I would love yeah like I'm beginning to realize um how much this is the third time maybe the fourth time like this like getting out into the the field and and that feels so much more real to me like when we did it in Wissahickon when we did it in Ephrata uh me and Jesse went to um uh Buchanan's uh pyramid like all of this like this where is that located uh probably 90 minutes west of where i am okay so that's out so kind of in cumberland out where jesse is a little huh? bit far south of that closer to the maryland border okay. uh it's it's i mean i did a i did a show if you haven't seen that you might find it really interesting about like fort ritchie and all sorts of stuff like that that's on i want to get out like i'm sorry that's on your channel I believe so. Yeah, it was, I right. put that out maybe a month ago, but it was it. really good. But like this idea of like getting out and looking at the place and talking about the history and seeing what we see with our own eyes, uh, interacting with folks like I love that's where to me, that's what 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 I would like to do and what I'd like to do more of. Yeah. And, and feedback I've gotten that people enjoy that as well. I think so, too. It's a whole lot more exciting than seeing some dude in his creepy basement, right? <laughs> like everyone's like what's behind those sheets what bodies are you hiding all right all right mystic mike give thanks man yeah 11 11 it uh i'm sure it met expectations you know there we go oh let me say this one thing i'm doing uh um 
on 1031 on, on the, uh, from, I think it's two to five and I'll, and I'll put a link. I'll send you the link. If you could share this as well. I'm doing an in-person presentation. I'm going to be talking about consciousness, then specifically about the Susquehanna river. And I'm going to be doing that in, in new Cumberland, Pennsylvania, which is close to, to Harrisburg. So if anyone's listening, who lives in this greater area, I'd love to see you come out and, you know, do the things face to face. So I want to put that out there. All right. I might be in the house. I would love this, to see uh, that. The 31st. That's the 31st. And near Harris. Sunday. Yeah. All right. Is it a nature setting or it's in the city? Nope. It's uh it's in a place called uh Be Well Be Present um, Wellness. Be you didn't Present tell me Wellness. About that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I it's feel wellness like center. It's a wellness present. center. Yeah. If we're yeah. gonna be inside, this is the sort of place you want to be inside at. All right. All right. Sounds good. Maybe we'll do our next episode. Then. I would love if we could do that. That'd be amazing. That'd be huh. amazing. All right. Line it up. All right, my friend. All right. From one mystic to another, bro. Salute. Salute.